Hello, friends. Welcome to The Membership. This is a podcast about the works and life of Wendell Berry, the farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is Tim Wasson, and I'm joined by my two fellow members. This is Jason Hardy. And this is John Patterson. Tonight, John, Jason, and I will be discussing The Girl in the Window and The Hurt Man. These are the only two Port William short stories set in the 19th century. As we mentioned in episode zero, we'll be reading and discussing Mr. Barry's fiction in chronological order. So this is the beginning of the road for us. The Girl in the Window was published in 2010 in the Three Penny Review originally. And uh, the story takes place in 1864. And The Hurt Man was originally published in the Hudson Review in the autumn of 2003. The Girl in the Window can be found in... It's uh, A Place in Time, a collection, yeah. Place in Time, and The Hurt Man can be found in uh, That Distant Land. So these are his two collected stories. Both of them can also be found in the Library of America edition. Looking forward to this, uh, getting, getting started off with fiction first fiction we've discussed, and um, these are two stories that I personally didn't have a good memory of. I I know I had read them at some point, but it was like reading them for the first time in a lot of ways. I think you guys will can can sympathize with this. We kind of talked about this off the air a little bit, but just that when you read these stories after not having seen them for a long time, and then you start to make the connections between names in the stories and all the others that exist out there. What was the reading experience like for you, Jason? Yeah, I mean it was uh, it was pretty similar. I I don't know that I had actually ever read The Hurt Man, so it was good to good to read that. I especially especially like The Girl in the Window, and excited to talk about that one. Yeah, I feel the same way. I had read both stories before, but it had been a while to be able to not only reread them, but to reread them again with an eye toward talking about them, and just to really to gave me a deeper appreciation for. The stories themselves, but even just down to some of the word choices that he would use. A couple things that jumped out to me about these stories, and I I doubt this was intentional, because I feel like if we asked him, he would just be like, I had a story to tell, so I told the story. But, but I feel like both of these stories are super interesting, because you can think about, or at least you can choose to think about them in a way that makes them pretty interesting representation of the ethos of Port William at its earliest form. Like, you can see reflections of the future of Port William through these characters, not just in names, but in the way they approach a situation, which was really interesting. These two stories made me realize how he was able to write about Port William for so long because he drops in these little things as he's going along and telling a story, and you think, ah, that could be another story. <laughs> There's another story. Yeah. There's another story. Yeah. This is uh, this place, is this whole world of Port William, Kentucky is so real in his head, of course, he's just got like an endless trove of stories. Yeah. I want to hear about the guy who, uh, walks up to people with his cane and demands to know who they are. <laughs> yeah. uh, I yeah. want to hear about the battle of Port William. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, but, uh, and I think it's interesting also to point out that both of these stories were written in the 21st century. Yeah. These, these are, are pretty these, late. These yeah. are late stories of his. The yeah. first, the first time he published a story about the 19th century of Port William was in 2003. Contrary to what, I guess, maybe basic logic would be for some readers who are thinking about, oh, he writes about this place. He probably started at the beginning. But, I mean, it's of course, he's always been, been hopping around. Uh, it was interesting that he waited that long. And we'll get into this, too. But I think, obviously, we're going to talk about how these two, these two stories both feature as their main characters, courageous women who are the mm. mother and future mother-in-law of Matt Feltner, one of the key characters. And so I yeah. love that he is beginning this journey going chronologically. He's beginning with, with these two brave, resolute women. That also kind of hints at the, the both of these stories. It, it was pretty thrilling to find the little overlap between these two that, mm-hmm. um, that he, you know, published these seven years apart, but they go together so nicely. They're, they're a perfect, a perfect match uh, of which of course they're the only ones in the 19th century, but they, they have a very clear, connective tissue between them with these characters. So that was, that was a neat thing that we weren't reading two stories that were totally in isolation of one another. They, they have some overlap, but mm-hmm. we should probably explain what that overlap is and start talking about the stories yeah. <laughs> before we get too far into it. Uh, and we're going to start with the girl in the window. Uh, the girl in the window again takes place in 1864, right in the throes of 
the Civil War. And it's a simple story in some ways, but it's a very deep story where it brings to mind the the iceberg principle, uh, the is it is a Hemingway the Hemingway yeah. iceberg principle, just that um, it's a story that's very full and abundant and feels very real. But as far as the actual action of the story and what happens in front of our face is pretty limited. Um, we learn about some characters. Uh, we learn specifically about Rebecca Daw is our our main character, uh, who is the will be the mother of Margaret Feltner. Uh, future character that we'll be talking about. And Rebecca Daw is a young woman who goes to stay with uh, Dicey and Thomas. And Dicey is, she's going to stay with her aunt during the Civil War because uh, her uncle is away. Uh, and her uncle is in the Civil War, and he's been he's gotten into a situation in the Civil War, and so he's been away for a long period of time. And so she comes back to help care for the children. And uh, we follow what has to be just a, a very small fraction of time in the life of Rebecca Daw. I mean, a fraction of a day, I should say, uh, kind of one interaction. And it's the interaction she has with uh, a group of rebels that are passing through town. To start off the discussion, uh, is the earliest story we have, how do the descriptions of Port William and like the mindset of a few of these characters fit into the greater, this is a big question, but fit into the greater world of Port William. And this is like geographically, like how did it, how did it land for you in the geographic space of Port William? But then also how, in what ways to you two did this feel like a Port William story? If this were the beginning, right? Like, I mean, I guess if you were reading that Library of America collection um, from the beginning, this would be the first thing you came to. So uh, you're kind of beginning at a time when Port William is sort of in uh, in shock, really, because of the Civil War. So uh, I think he says at, at some point that, I mean, something he likes to say about Port William over and over again is that it's in a like ongoing conversation with itself about itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but he says here, like he brings that line in um, and says that that conversation has sort of died down at this point because... Um, you know, this is Kentucky. The town is sort of split between Union and Confederate. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that that manifests itself even in um, even in violence. Right, uh, Rebecca Dawes, older brother Galen, is murdered uh, on his way to join up with the Confederacy. So, um, so it's it's kind of an odd place to come upon Port William if you think about the ethos of Port William, because everyone's sort of cloistered off and. Um, yeah, that's a good point. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think it, to me, it's one of the things that makes it an interesting starting point, an entry point for the Port William fiction is the way it contrasts. I think of Port William, uh, the fiction, as being so much about belonging. And I think he even uses the word at one point in this story, uh, the word unbelonging. These like these guys who are coming through, whether they are Confederate soldiers or Union soldiers or or bushwhackers, these these people who who don't belong for one reason or another, uh, whether I feel like whether they're local or not, whether they have local ties or not, they just they they don't belong. And so I think what Jason said about it kind of being in a state of shock is 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 a great description. Um, It doesn't. For someone who was familiar with Port William, already it's going to come as a shock uh, because it it does uh, – the sense that I get, the feeling that I get is that it's almost like a ghost town, you know? Yeah. Uh, those conversations aren't happening. People are in their house afraid. Uh, you don't know who you can trust anymore. And um, sort of in, in contrast to that, you have – uh, sort of this, 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 this one particular woman, someone who's not from Port William, taking a principled stand, even if even in the form of not backing away from from a window, you know, when yeah. she's commanded to by some stranger, um, that act of bravery by by an outsider um, brings us back into the Port William, I guess that 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 we know. Yeah, they, they, uh, yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And you, you're talking about how this feels like a ghost town. I mean, I totally, I think I totally agree. And, uh, I think it mentioned somewhere in the story that they're basically Port William has been the victim of both rebels and 
Union soldiers, like as they've passed through. Mm -hmm. People who've posed as one or really were from these soldiers, but have come through and taken whatever they want. They take their, if they, if they need food, they take food. If they need uh, supplies, they take supplies. If they need a horse, they take a horse. And so, of course, the people of Port William don't feel, they don't, they're not unified with one another. And they're also probably conflicted because they're seeing the people who are, quote, on their side coming through and doing sort of damage to Port William or taking advantage of them. Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't help, and this is like the my, my silly connection of the day, but I couldn't help thinking about the town in Three Amigos. <laughs> um, so nice. I, uh, that was what I, I was kind of picturing like a southern version of uh, of the little town in Three Amigos who are waiting on waiting on someone to come or waiting on the, the conflict to go away because they're just like, we just want to love each other. We just want to take care right. of each other. We just want to do our thing. and But we're we're stuck in the middle of this. Uh, this <laughs> this mess with uh, El Guapo coming yeah. through, and, and in the end, they are they are the they're the heroes they've been looking for, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I, I think I think too, like Tim, to your question about what do we see of the sort of ethos of Port William here? I mean, I think what what we do see is Wendell Wendell Berry giving us a portrait of the wisdom of people in small places, right? Um, Dicey in particular, um, it says that she started out the war being moderately, you know, sympathetic with the Confederacy, but uh, by the time the war got started and what what she saw of what that meant um, for the town just, like, totally turned her off to war mm-hmm. in general. Um, and this is, you know, this is someone who... Her husband's a blacksmith, and she's living in a small place. Um, and she has that um, that section where she starts. Uh, it, I think I think she he mentions her uh, that she has like a like affinity for language. She uh, mm. she liked to say things well, mm. um, and then she uh, she comes to view all of the soldiers who are coming through as creatures, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. is that Dicey or is that Rebecca who refers to him as creatures? I'm pretty sure it's Dicey. Okay. Yeah, that was that was a pretty fascinating and like pretty direct. <laughs> uh, just thinking about when this was taking place, mm-hmm. um, or, or when this story was 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 written in, t- in 2010, hmm. uh, she, referring to soldiers as creatures that they are not whether what doesn't matter what side they're from that they're a type of creature that she can't understand and can't sympathize with, um, and maybe soldiers standing in the greater part for two parties at odds and that are fighting uh, and using violence. But she couldn't tell North from South and how they treated Port William. Uh, and so they just became these kind of creatures that crawled through town. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of uh, Animal Farm, right? Uh, the pigs and the people just started looking more and more like one another. And so the people who you thought were on your side uh, are just blurring together. Um yeah. Well, and just just what I mean that word creature and sort of what he does with it they they lose the classification of human and yet in using that word she is uh Dicey is acknowledging um that that they are still uh still have dignity under God like that the the root word of creature is you know the same as create, right? Oh, yeah. So a creature has to be created uh, <laughs> by by God, right? So um, yeah, just that that note of the care of language that I think mm-hmm. Barry has mentioned in other places that he learned not from his Stanford education, but from you know uh, in a lot of cases the uh, the people he grew up with, yeah, getting a sense of the connotation of words, yeah, um, yeah. And if I could just read part of one paragraph where that talks about the creatureliness. Yeah. Uh, this is this is uh, Rebecca now talking about uh, – this is Rebecca's from, from her perspective. Watching them was in fact like watching creatures of another species, a flock of blackbirds or a school of shad. Everything they had done seemed to her familiar and unsurprising, but she could not in the least anticipate what they would do next. And it was this sense of their oddity, their utter strangeness, that made her afraid of them. The unpredictability and just not feeling there's there's no sort of connection between the two. Mm-hmm. I like that. I love that passage. Um, now, yeah, so she's she's dealing with this. I, I would I would call it an anger. I mean, she's dealing with this anger towards a very big thing, 
while at the same time being a part of something that's very small. Mm-hmm. Uh, where she, f- I'm sure she and other people in the town feel like they are just the like the sustenance of this greater thing that they really have nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. They're just being they're just being eaten up by it. Um, and there is a section uh, in the story where it refers to the human condition, uh, which I thought was really. Uh, fascinating. There, the Port William is this town that is just never at rest. This was the late summer of 1864, and their luxuries were in fact lucky and rare. But they were living in what Rebecca was learning fast to recognize as the human condition, in which things are most clearly known by their opposites. She and the others were most touchingly and dear, dearly living because Galen Daw and so many others were dead, because so many boys, even as young as Rebecca, had been killed in battle, cut down like weeds. And like weeds, of course, that that choice being uh, choosing weeds, not choosing crops, right? <laughs> not mm-hmm. choosing, not choosing uh, things of value. So they're cut down like things that weren't of value. And I just think that that, that is a, a really good thing, or a really interesting thing to to read first in the first story we talk about, because that idea of opposites is such a pillar of Barry's writing. Um, I think we're going to see, I've got, it's one of those things that I cannot not see in about everything that I read that he loves to describe things as both this and that, or they were a town that was both loved and hated as like a simple example. So, you know, mm-hmm. like he loves to, to say that nothing is as simple as that they were just loved. No, they're, they're, everything is, is more complex than that. Um, that the, the human condition is a, is a state of being both at the same time, but just at any given time leaning one way or the other. And we see that right from the start in the you know, 1860s here in Port William. And I, you know, I'm uh, curious, did you, the two of you notice how often he used the word bunch in this story? Mm-mm. Oh yeah. At least, no, I didn't realize I, it. at least eight times he talks about the, the soldiers as bunches. He talks about bunch violence. He talks about them bunching together well, I was just I was very struck by that and trying to and I tried was trying to figure out what Barry may be saying about the inhumanity that manifests in like nameless crowds. And uh, and you kind of will see a, some of that in the next story as well. Yeah, I just did. I was curious. If, Twelve times. Twelve times. Yeah, I used a I have a PDF of it pulled up. Oh. from. Uh, from three penny and yes, twelve times dividing into separate parts. Sounds like twenty eighteen. <laughs> Sounds super familiar. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple points in in the story in which I was struck by at least what seems like a fairly dim view of uh, human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 one of you already already read one of the passages, but there was another one where he he talks about uh, these soldiers. And bushwhackers doing freely beyond constraint or compunction the things that it seemed men would do if they got the chance. Yeah, I mean, you have that, um, I guess, juxtaposed with uh, um, Rebecca Dawes. I mean, I guess it's not really a decision because she doesn't have a gun. (laughs) But she she thinks about wanting to shoot uh, the, the... uh, soldier who you know sort of looks at her and insults her and um, yeah and, and and decides not to and that uh, Tim you have the quote I can there. I can read the quote it's yeah. just she thought and the thought was familiar to her that's interesting it was familiar to her how easy it would have been if she had had a gun if she had placed herself a few feet back in the shadowy room to have shot him dead and then she thought immediately for this thought also was familiar of the endlessness of such an act or of its many ends multiplying unforeseeably forever. Maybe it was that thought that kept most people out of the way of such acts when they could keep out of the way of them. It's kind of the, I feel like it's the opposite of the quote, or uh, the antithesis to the quote that you just read, John, about how like anybody would do this if they had the chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's maybe where our optimism comes in or where our, our better view on human nature comes in, where she says, well, maybe that's why most people don't do this, because they understand that these the effects of this can roll out for long periods of time, like a, yeah. ri- a ripple effect. And, uh, yeah. And this is, this is, I think one of the darker stories of his, uh, just that or less op- It's not, it doesn't have that optimism kind of like you guys were saying, um, doesn't have that 
there isn't a character there until I think the one of the last lines of the story. There isn't a line that uh, really makes us kind of pulls us back up, like gets us to straighten up our back and and uh, let the tension out of our shoulders. Really, um, it's a it's a story that sees one of the most violent moments that we see, directly violent moments, maliciously violent moments. Um, and we also get these thoughts going through our head involving murder, right? That's not, this isn't a, a, a series that has some murder mysteries that pop up now and then. It's not, right. it's a, it's a normal, it's a normal little town. This, you, you hear about the, you find out about the beauty of the mundane in this little town. It's not a series that's ripe with villains. <laughs> you know, we don't have villains walking these streets who everybody's like, oh, here comes, the, you know, that, that doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't come out in these like really explicit ways. And so this, this soldier that comes through is one of the most repugnant characters we meet in his book, uh, or in, in his, in his stories, I think, uh, what he says to her. He looks up at her. Get your ugly face out of that window or something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Get your ugly face out of that. I mean, that's. That's a pretty biting one-liner, right? <laughs> this yeah. is a story where we've only got a few lines of dialogue at all. Right. And the ones that are there pack quite a punch. Um, and they overlap by two words. And so there's, there's only about you know, a handful of words that are, uh, that are spoken in that last part of the story. Think about all the stories that could take place between this one and The Hurt Man, the next hmm. one to read. Because hmm. that's like the recovery period of... The Civil War, right? Those 24 years that take place between these two would have been a really hard 24 years for the people of Port William to heal some of those wounds that came up during this this time. What Rebecca and her family is dealing with and the, the families that were up against one another who took sides because they were in this unusual place or in the middle of the country where they could have gone one way or the other. Is there um, Wendellberry fan fiction or are there people oh, there writing will Port be. William stories there who are not Wendellberry? We will add that page to the website. Yeah. <laughs> will we will we though? Yeah. <laughs> it'll be it'll be hidden. You gotta guess what the yeah, what the tag yeah. is at the end of the URL. John, what was your what was the impact of the end of the story on this? Could you you describe it to us and then and what did what did you take away from the end of the story? Yeah, so that uh the the line from the soldier that you just that you just mentioned, he he he's uh out on the street he's on his horse he looks up he sees rebecca in the window and he says with perfect contempt in his voice get your ugly face out of that window later so she defy like she and she defies him she doesn't move mm-hmm. her face out of the window and eventually he rides on and then she turns around and um uh, she looks at herself in the mirror um, she said, and it, the Windowberry says she would not have liked to catch herself thinking of herself as beautiful though she was, but she did think articulating the words deliberately as if saying them aloud, that is not an ugly face. And I, that's how the story ends and it's perfect. That's <laughs> a wonderful <laughs> declared or just, just declaring it declarative yeah. statement. Like not, I'm not ugly. It's that is not an ugly face. What I see in front of me um, is not an ugly face. Yeah, and if so, if and if so, if war strips us of our humanity um, and makes us gives people um, license and cover to do the things that they might not otherwise do um, when they are bound by community and morality. Um, like you have this, you, you know, Rebecca's, uh, uh, courage to keep her face in the window, to keep looking down at him and then to look in the mirror and assert her own humanity and dignity in again, in just the simplest, mm-hmm. uh, like most declarative, lovely way mm-hmm. is perfect. It's again, it's like, it's at the level of, of, the very personal individual choice. Um, she made a number of individual choices, not, you know, uh, I don't know if she had access to a gun, but she realizes how that wouldn't solve anything. So she, you know, makes yeah. a choice to not go down that route. 
and she makes a simple choice to reaffirm her own dignity before going to find the rest of her family as these as these as this bunch of soldiers moves on. We can't undersell the strength of this, like when you put it into its context of its time, that she's a, like you had mentioned that she's a strong female character, that the 2008, I feel like the 2018 version of this moment would have been her standing in the window with like two middle fingers up, staring at the sky. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's how, probably how risky of a stance it would be for her to just be like, no, I'm right. not looking at, and it's an important, uh, physical geography of it, right? That she's above him and she's looking down at him and she's like, I'm not scared of you. Like I'm, I'm going to stay right here. Uh, and I, I can't help but see, I, I taught ninth grade for two years. And so I, I can't help but compare it to the things that I had to read all the time. I've already made an animal farm reference and now I'm going to make a Romeo and Juliet reference that the, this is the like opposite of the balcony scene, right? <laughs> we have these two characters that hate each other that are looking down uh, and and up and this is the only interaction that they have this is their most most direct interaction that they have and she doesn't uh she doesn't let him get away from, get away with it and it's a, it's a beautiful show of strength well and if you compare what she's doing with what the rest of the town did right we're mm-hmm. told that these this band of soldiers sort of gallops into town and she hears before she even sees them she hears everyone like sort of start talking and then stop talking and then close and lock their doors, right? Everyone's hiding from them for good reason. Um, but her instinct is she's she's so mad at uh, at these guys and the, the bunches like them, mm-hmm. right? That she's willing to stand her ground and and show that she is not going to live into their narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Their narrative is that they have power, um, and that they are, uh, it's okay for them to use their power to take things from people and people better be scared of them. Um, but she's not scared. Uh, she's not running away. She's, uh, she's looking down on him and, and his, his reaction can only mean because he doesn't like, I was scared in that moment that he was going to storm the house or pull out his gun and try to shoot her through the window or something like that, right? Uh, but he doesn't. Like, there's so there's mm-hmm. there's some sort of shame. He's lost face, and he turns and rides away, right? Yeah, and we've, we've skipped the part of the section of Eli, right? Yeah. Where she watches yeah. that, which that was another, and you wonder if that is what gave her the strength to be up mm-hmm. there because she mm-hmm. was so scared of the idea of, her mother's slave falling, Mm -hmm. right? This person that she, even though she describes him as what he is as a slave, she's the idea of losing that person because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time terrifies her. And so you wonder if that she gets strength from that of of, like her looking down at him is like the unspoken thing is if you would have heard him, I would have come out there. (laughs) I would have come (laughs) after you where we can finish on the story that I, I, She's such a, she shows herself as such a strong figure, especially in 1864, especially in the midst of such violence. Um, Rebecca Doss seems to me like she could be thought of in some ways as a, our sort of matriarch of Port William, that she's the, this figure that her strength in the people that come from her with Margaret and the family that she enters um, is as good of any as a, as a sign, as a, a symbol of what Port William is to become. And I wondered as I was reading the story, if Barry's trying to show us the seed of how Port William became what we know it as. Well, from these and, previous stories. yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, people who don't like Wendell Berry's, you know, uh, ethos or, or his fiction sort of, you know, talk down about Port William as like an ingrown kind of place. Um, but what's interesting is Rebecca Daw refuses to marry anyone from Port William <laughs> because all the young men at that time had participated in one of the bunches or most, good most of the young men. Yeah. yeah. And she, she marries Robert. Is it Robert Finley? Or, well, no, or, that's, no, that's the singer. That's a, <laughs> that's uh, that is. You're right. That is a singer. That's a blues musician. Uh, yeah, a guy whose last name it. is Finley who, uh, who moves over from, is it Ireland? Yeah. Is that right? And that's yeah. all we know. We don't even hear his first yeah. name. I think he's just Finley. Yeah, that's right. Which that's is right. probably how he would want it to be. He's just this character. He just kind of comes in and he's mm-hmm. the, and they, they become the starting point for what becomes the, the yeah. Feltner family. So, yeah. So she marries this, this guy who, who immigrates from Ireland and Barry says that he was escaping bunch violence in his own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
good catch. Um, it reminds me, I feel like we could tag this episode or this story with a hashtag, nevertheless, she persisted. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. And the next story, the next story too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, it's as good a transition as any. Let's move on. Let's talk about the hurt man. So just like the girl in the window, the hurt man is a simple episode, a limited action, similar to what you were saying, Tim. But also like the girl in the window, I think it goes very deep. It's uh, it's another iceberg short story, I would say. It takes place in the late summer of 1888, and specifically, it takes place on a Saturday afternoon, which is uh, ends up being kind of important. And Matt Feltner, who will encounter a number of times in various Port William fiction. Uh, he's five years old. And Matt is the son of Ben Feltner and Nancy Beecham Feltner. And Ben and Nancy had lost their other three children, I think. And then Matt came along as a surprise when uh, I looked this up in the the family tree thing in the, in the Library of America version. Like Nancy w- was in her late 30s, o- almost 40 years old, and Ben was in his mid-40s. And Barry says that in all the time that Matt Feltner had known his mother, like she had worn black. Mm-hmm. And so Matt is kind of early in his journey of kind of a growing awareness about who he is and where he fits in Port William. And uh, like even to the point where Barry writes that in his own thoughts, he wasn't sure whether he would turn out to be a boy or a girl. He was still wearing dresses, and then when he outgrew those dresses, he would give them to the pretty neighbor girl named Margaret Finley. <laughs> and Margaret is the daughter of Rebecca Dot, who we just talked about. And she's also Matt's future wife. Uh, Barry, there's a line that I really love where Barry says that Margaret was too little to uh, matter much to Matt at that at this point, but that she would begin to matter a great deal to him in a dozen years, and after that, would matter to him all of his life. The beautiful little nod to his loyal readers, the people who would have picked up on that right away, right? The, yeah. the story being in 2003 or whatever, saying like, and mm-hmm. just to let you know, this is this is who you think it is. Kind of. mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, Port William uh, in 1888 is about a century old. Throughout, uh, every once in a while in Wendelberry's uh, short fiction, he'll, he'll offer sort of a new... A description of what Port William is like physically at, at like at that point, mm-hmm. and he does that uh, in this story. He describes it as a river town, and uh, the river sort of runs uh, along the bottom of the hill where Port William sits, and says that at this point in 1888, the town consists of two rows of dwellings, and then along its main road, it has stores and a couple saloons, a church, a bank, a hotel, and a blacksmith's shop. And then at one end of the town is a school, and at the other end is the graveyard. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the journey yeah, that we're yeah, all on. Yeah. This is <laughs> Your whole life will take place between these two things. <laughs> yeah. You know, and this was perhaps unintentional, but I would say that that's perhaps even a theme of this story. Hmm. And he, but even though Port William is small, it's a hub for certainly people who are in the town, but also for the the, the folks who are living in the countryside around it. And this is especially true on Saturdays and election days. And Barry says that on Saturdays and election days, the stores and the saloons and the road itself would be just very crowded with people. So this is not a ghost town any, anymore, 24 years or whenever, uh, or whatever, after the last one. Like this life is happening on the streets. And something that he does say, which connects to the, the last story that we that we just talked about, Barry says that the crowd that gathered there was entirely familiar to itself. It remembered all its history of allegiances, offenses, and resentments going from the previous Saturday to the Civil War and long before that. So there's those. There's that plethora of stories, to borrow a word from Three Amigos. Uh, there's the, <laughs> that plethora of stories that I want to hear, that, that right. time period. I want to hear about all this. Yeah. <laughs> And so we even even those the scores that were being settled in you know during the Civil War, uh, as people were using the institutional violence as cover to settle uh, personal scores, like 
those resentments had not totally faded. Uh, they were still very much in uh, the present. And Barry says that Port William has had its angers and it has its justifications for angers. And also because it was somewhat remote, it was like a dozen miles upriver from where you know the official law was that somebody's anger had a license to do what it might not have had the license to do in some other place. And we we also see that that Matt Feltner has a lot of freedom around town. He's he's only 5 but he has kind of the run of the place, but wherever he goes he's watched by his parents, by uh neighbors and by two ex-slaves Cass and Smoke who live on the Feltner property. But on Saturdays and elections his mother Nancy keeps him close and that's where the story, this particular story, is set. It's on a Saturday, summer 1888, and Matt and his mother Nancy are sitting on the porch mm-hmm. uh, that this afternoon. And Nancy is darning socks, and Matt is watching her work and listening to her tell stories. And while they do that, they're also looking down into the town and sort of watching and listening to the crowd that's down there. And they see and they hear a scuffle break out. And there's some shouts. And then man who's covered in blood sort of breaks out from the crowd and starts running up the street toward where Matt and Nancy are sitting. And he's followed very closely by a a small group of other running men. And when the hurt man, whose name we never learn, gets to them, his face and his hair and shirt are bloody and his Blood is dripping on the ground, and Matt is just transfixed. But then his mother kind of springs into action. She puts him through the front door and then tells the hurt man to go in too. And then when he goes through, Nancy blocks the door. And I think this is a one of those acts of, of courage similar to Rebecca Daw mm-hmm. in the last story. Because here's a bunch, a bunch of men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Coming up to the to the porch, and it actually says that they bunched up at the top of the steps, but that they were utterly stopped by the slender woman dressed in mourning. Yeah, it's both both women place themselves somewhere that shows their strength, like their their physical. Yeah. Like this is where I am, and you're not going to get me to not be here. <laughs> There's nothing. Yes, nothing yes. you can do is going to make me move. Uh, or yeah. All right, yeah, and I maybe we'd even say almost nothing because she mm-hmm. does move, but not in not until one of the men takes off his hat and says, "It's all right, Mrs. Feltner, we're his friends." Yeah. Like they identify themselves as friends, and they call her by her name, and they act with deference toward her on her property. Yeah, taking off the hat, and it says that, she, yeah, and it says that she kind of studies them for a moment, and then finally leads them through the door. They go through the house. The man has gone into onto the back porch. And they they find him, and he's in really bad shape. Barry says that now that this the hurt man had stopped running, he looked used up. He was pallid beneath the streaked bright blood, breathing in gasps, his eyes too widely open. He looked as though he had just come up from almost too deep a dive. In the face of this, Nancy moves very quickly. We find out that she knows these men. Like, they knew her name, and she knows at least three of them by name. She sends two of the of the named characters to the doctor a third named guy to bring a bucket of water and then she cleans the man's wounds and all the time that she's cleaning the wounds she's you know leaning down over him and saying you know you're at ben feltner's house your friends are here you're going to be all right you're going to be all right and this ends up this short episode ends up being a very important one for matt i feel like up until this point time was not really a conscious reality for him it says at the beginning of the story that nothing in Port William seemed to him to be in passage from any beginning to any end. The living had always been alive, and the dead had always been dead. The world as he knew it then simply existed, familiar even in its changes. Yeah, I love those lines. I was just going to interject. I, I marked those, highlighted them, put a star next to it. That uh, Such a familiar, relatable notion that moment of childhood that everybody goes through whether it's 1888 or now where Mm -hmm. uh, your world is what your world is and not enough has left it or come into it for you to i mean for not for everybody of course some people have much more volatile existence but like as far as a normal existence for a kid i mean that was that's what it felt like right i mean yeah your, your town your place is what it is 
not too much has changed in the entire length of your life that you can remember, which the older you get, the easier it is, easier it is to remember times that were different. But for him, you know, he's five years old. He doesn't remember most of being three years old. <laughs> so he's, he's functioning on such a limited scope that this becomes kind of like a, a launching off point for what comes next for the rest of his life. He becomes face to face with loss, not only loss, but seeing his mother's sorrow and her tender care over this hurt man. And I think we're, we're told that even though he couldn't articulate it at this point, Matt realizes that everyone who was up in that graveyard had once upon a time been alive and walking in Port William. Like, and that not only that, but everyone living would someday die. And that included his mother and the hurt man and even Matt himself. Realizing that loss was part of life was not the beginning of despair, but the beginning of compassion. Hmm. And I, it was the way in which Matt himself would enter more fully into the unfolding story of Port William. Like to, as time became a reality for him and he begins to collect stories and he becomes a, one of the memory keepers for Port William. And Barry describes this loss and the accepting of loss as part of the town's hard history of love, which is an incredible phrase, <laughs> the hard history of love. Yeah. Am I right, Tim, that you had read this before, mm-hmm. but Jason, you had not? I had not, no. So this was, I had read this story before reading The Girl in the Window. I'm curious, did you start with The Girl in the Window and then go to The Hurt Man? I did, yeah. So what was it like reading this right after The Girl in the Window? I think something that really struck me was um, how similar both of these stories are in terms of form. And I guess this is a form that Barry follows in, certainly not all, but but a lot of his stories, right? Where um, it sort of begins with this thick description of either a place or the story of a place through time Mm -hmm. in order to place a particular moment, right? And that moment is just a moment and it's really a sketch of a moment, right? It's, these aren't stories that have much of a plot, right? It's zeroing in on a single moment in someone's life that is by all of the description and the descriptive work that Barry has done so far in the story is very deeply settled into a context. And that's that's why it's meaningful. And I feel like even Barry's novels in a lot of ways are like this. Mm-hmm. Um, Moments are important because of where they happen, who they happen with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, it's planted within something. Yeah, You don't have as many examples. I mean, of course, there are some examples, but you don't have as many examples of characters have, do, taking care of things in isolation by right. themselves. It's always about... right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that just goes along well with Barry's whole ethos of knowing your place and your history and sort of the role you are playing out in the story of your place and your community. What about you, Tim? What was the experience like for you reading these two stories together? I kind of, I guess, touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but it was just this sense of knowing the body of fiction fairly well that reading these two stories back to back to start this whole journey that we're doing together here it felt like a really appropriate starting point um it felt like uh, i was getting a glimpse into the big bang of port william not in like the founding of the place but as far as in uh, seeing some moments and some characters that uh like for matt like Example, this is a moment that happens in the life of Matt Feltner, who his influence rippled out a long way throughout all these Mm -hmm. other stories into other people's lives, whether it was spoken about or not, which it obviously it wasn't because the story is being told right here. I delighted in getting to see a different side of Port William and, and getting to see a Port William in a physical sense that was different than what I'd known before, just as far as imagining it in a you know, it's slightly more Wild West kind of feel to it than than what I imagined it as in the uh, 1930s, 40s, 50s, like that yeah. that time period that you kind of have a... I, I can recognize that. This one felt a little more foreign in a way that was really interesting. Um, 
we, we've talked a lot about in this episode about the ethos of Port William. And I think this story has a pretty clear parallel drawn to the story of the Good Samaritan. And mm. I feel like that's pretty representative of the people of Port William. That That's what struck me the most in reading these two stories back to back. That You've got the, the first story where a hostile force comes through town and is stood up to in a dignified way. And then in the next story, you have a sort of a, a radical, free radical or whatever that just kind of flies into the situation. In a, and I think it says somewhere in the story that that uh, Matt's mother would have looked down or would have made a comment or would have pointed out the fact that he had whiskey on his breath or whatever. Uh, yeah. that, that those people they were looking at were, they, were, they weren't surprised that that was going on down there. But when she when he flies into her life, all that changes and that she ends up, uh, Matt points out that she his mother sees this man and sees his pain and is responding to his pain and is disregarding all the other things that she might normally have pointed out or might have reacted to. And uh, that sort of good Samaritan reaching out and taking good care of somebody who you normally wouldn't have associated with. I mean, they're literally separated with geographically down the road. They're staying away from them. And that he swoops in and she takes care of him was very powerful to me. The, the good Samaritan thing really struck me. Yeah. And I think interesting too, that the first story that we, we talked about violence is to some level exterior to the town and, this violence, the violence that sets this story in motion is coming from within. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. We get our first glimpse of Wendelberry's humor in this story. Was there any humorous parts of the last story? Not really. No, no, no. no but we, uh, <laughs> no, no civil war jokes. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't think so, but uh, we get a couple characters, like when you like capital mm-hmm. C characters. That were loosely mentioned, and Jason was the one you had you had mentioned the the guy with the cane, the oldest citizen, yeah, who would just whenever people visited the town would walk up to them and bang his cane on the ground and said, "And who might you be?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, the gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had the uh, and Herman Goslin, uh, the guy carrying the, <laughs> carrying the trunk for the people, and these boys making fun of her. And uh, here comes Herman Goslin with that fat, with with a fat lady's trunk. And then his candor, which, you know, we're going to keep the explicit tag off this podcast, but uh, you can kiss that fill in the blank, right? You can kiss that fat lady's, uh, said Herman Gosselin, ain't that telling him fat lady, and looks at her like as he refers to her as a fat lady. And I think that uh, uh, Wendell Berry's, his humor is, is undersold in his Yeah, writing. he introduced that guy as he was no genius, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And Herman Goslin, no genius, made his scant living by meeting the steamboats and transporting the disembarking passengers, if any, up to the hotel in a gimpy buckboard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed getting the first taste of his of his humor. His humor comes uh, in unexpected bursts, usually. Um, but then the further we get into this, you start to notice the certain characters that you can expect it from. Right. But uh, and, and he's I think he's pretty good at the uh, the humor that comes in just one or two lines. Right. Mm-hmm. pretty quick so he's 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 very good at that i guess uh, i'm in danger of of becoming the guy who just points out all of the repeating words um because i did that <laughs> with the last one too yeah. so what is it in this one but it's the word surprise and unsurprised mm-hmm. he says that matt uh and nancy are not surprised and he actually says that twice that there was a scuffle in town that they weren't surprised when the bloodied man breaks out of the crowd and runs towards them Matt was unsurprised when his mother moves him into the house. He was surprised that she didn't come into the house, and it says that he was surprised but not afraid. Then he says he wasn't surprised that she had tended to the hurt man, but then he is surprised when he sees her face, and he says what he saw in her face would remain with him forever. It was pity, but it was more than that. It was a hurt love that seemed to include entirely the hurt man. It included him and disregarded everything else, disregarded the aura of whiskey, that ordinarily she would have resented a disregard of the blood puddled on the porch floor and the trail of blood through the hall. And then in the very last paragraph, Barry writes, from that day, whatever happened, there was a knowledge in Matt that was unsurprised and at last comforted until he was old, until he was gone. Mm-hmm. You guys are the are the lit guys. Uh, I feel like there's, there's something I, I'm supposed to be getting about 
the language of surprised and unsurprised. Maybe it's a, I don't know, a stand-in for something else, like a young boy's coming into knowledge of, you know, greater knowledge of of himself and where he fits into the town or something like that. But I'm curious, first of all, if you guys noticed and what you made of it. I didn't notice, but, but hearing them all back to back, I mean, in my head, I used this word earlier, but it's like a, a, a calibrating for Matt, right? This like surprise, mm-hmm. unsurprise. Because then when I think about the body of work of, of Wendell Berry, one thing that's really striking about the people of this town is that they're so rooted and so unified together that there are very few moments when they seem like shocked by anything. Or even when something comes up and is a problem or a sickness or a, a tragedy or something, that the characters always handle them in some sort of stride, even if they're in pain. And so this is Matt's aha moment that... From now on, I can find comfort in not being surprised because I, that was the last thing I was expecting to come out of this moment or this this, this mm-hmm. day of sitting on the porch with my mom and hearing these stories that I would pass on to my son. Yeah, and the fact that the thing that he's surprised by as a child is compassion, right? N- this yeah, that's entering true. entering into the suffering of the hurt man. Like, of course, his mom's going <sighs> to yeah. help like because that's just what she does. But compassion is his... I don't know if it's his first experience of being genuinely surprised, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like looking at her face and sort of seeing what she's feeling, the emotion and where that's coming from. Um, that's why we pay you the big bucks. That's, that's a good. <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a good. That's a great. I love that. That he was he was surprised, and you're totally right. He was surprised more so by the compassion on his mother's face than what I said than by the. The bloody man running up, which right, like any five year old right. would be like, wow, you know, like you'd think that would be like the thing, but no, the story right. is all about it's about how his, his mother's reaction. The the guy is kind of secondary. Obviously, he's never even named, right? We never even learn who he is. We don't know what we never learn what happened to him. They don't give us the backstory of that because that's not the important part. The important part is how his mother handled the situation and right. how uh, she didn't seem surprised by it and she didn't seem shook by it at all. And two paragraphs above that, actually, it's the one that I just read he talks about a hurt love Mm. a hurt love that seemed to include entirely the hurt man and included him and disregarded everything else and when i think about the word that you use jason the word compassion which of course literally means to suffer with like here is a woman who has suffered Mm. herself she sees in this man in front of her this hurt man where for a moment he is all that exists for her like she is so connected to him in his pain and suffering the love that she is sharing with him mm-hmm. is a love that is suffering with him uh, on some very real level maybe it's the um gosh the three quarters of love in her that she hasn't been able to use losing those three children before was it three that were that it say there were three yeah. mm-hmm. that are in the cemetery with the little lambs carved above their tombstones that it's like you're seeing mm-hmm. her find an outlet for this abundance of love that she had within her that she has been dealing with and wearing black for all these years and that's maybe a i think might be a little overly simple or like obvious of a observation because i don't think she's showing love for him because she doesn't get to show that love for her missing children. Maybe a little bit. I think it's mostly because of the type of person she is and who she, and where she came from and the place that she's from. Well, and she recognizes her her common humanity with this guy in his suffering, and she is someone who has known suffering, right? Apart from all of the things that... I mean, guys like this guy are the reason that she keeps Matt at home on Saturday afternoons, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so she doesn't approve of, I guess, his lifestyle choices or, or whatever we want to call it. But but she recognizes that regardless of that, uh, he is he is suffering in that moment, and and that is universally human. Can I jump in and like kind of change the subject just a little bit to something? Mm-hmm. Uh, just another point. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote of something I like from this story in that there are a few sections of the story that I feel like speak to the difference of children at this time versus children today. The quote that that stuck out to me that I I really wanted to talk about is that he, uh, Matt talks about his his uncle Jack, right? Memory of, memory of old Jack that we we will read, you know, three years from now or whatever when, when we get to it. Um, but uh, he had, it says he had seen the steamboats on the river and had looked out from the higher ridgetops. And so he understood that the world went on into the distance, but he did not know how much more of it there might be. 
right? That's that was it goes along with his like this is where I am. I don't remember this place changing, but it, he sits there. It's as if he's sitting at the edge of the ocean, right? And that I can't help but hear that and think part of his character and his strength comes from this is my place and I've been here. This is all I know and I love it. I'm trying to take care of it. But the whole world out there seems so enormous that reverence is never lost for him. That it may, It's almost like the world seems so big and mysterious that it makes the, the local more special. Am I making any sense? It's like, because I'm thinking about the, the, the contrast of kids today and, and adults today. Things that are happening all over the world are being thrown at us constantly that it makes our local world a little less important because we're like, what's hop- what's happening out there? Yeah, it does. Although when you said you wanted to talk about kids back then, I assumed you were going to talk about the fact that he was smoking a cigar at age five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he had already learned to smoke and to chew coffee beans to cover up the, the smell on his breath. I'm like, it's a good move, kid. Yeah. <laughs> Something else I really like about uh, the Hurt Man it introduces Andy Catlett, as well as the theme that Andy Catlett and Matt Feltner are both memory keepers for Port William. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like we, you know, you see, we see Matt on the porch watching his mom work and listening to her stories. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Matt Feltner inherited memory keeping from, from his mother. And I just love this idea that there are people in our community who live to a certain extent as if the past is still present, that like the past is still now somehow. And I think this is in part, the story is in part about how Port Williams memory keeper sort of entered into the stream of time. Like before this, he was kind of in this constant present that we talked about. And now as a result of, of understanding loss for the first time, he kind of enters that stream and starts to look back and imagine the people who were here before. And it begins to imagine the people who will be here after. And I, I often I think about memory keepers for my own town, and there are people who I think about as memory keepers, and I would even say that I hope to be a memory keeper for Silverton. I'm curious if the, the, the two of you thought about what this meant, what this episode meant for Matt as a future memory keeper and storyteller for Port William. And I'm also curious if there are memory keepers who come to mind for you guys in, in Johnson City. For Matt, I think that, and I did not think of this when I was reading it, just inspired by your words right now, is that I think that Matt, this is Matt's moment where he learned to pay attention, right? That he, lear- mm-hmm. that he learned to notice things. Uh, to be a storyteller, you have to notice and you have to take note of those things and, and find the significant. And he, this is what taught him to pay attention to the look on his mother's face, right? The mm-hmm. What her hands were doing and the... The fact that they were staying steady, that she was doing something that would have been difficult or traumatic, but doing in a way that was of love. He learned to pay attention in a way that was collected and not caught up in the drama, not panicking, right? And that's, yeah, I think, I, and like I said, I didn't think of that before. I think that's just because of what you were saying. I think he's, he's being taught to, to pay attention, and, and he is becoming that first keeper of the stories. And it gives me a whole, hearing you say that as well, it gives me a whole new appreciation for or really a much overdue appreciation for the people um, who write, you know, these, the series of books that all look like the cover looks the same, but they're writing about a town, right? Mm. You know, the series that you see. And so you see them in a local bookstore Um, and they're, they're writing one and you're like, and you see them and, and I've never consciously think this, but you're like, huh, I wonder how somebody ends up writing about that instead of something else, right? right. Uh, which is not a very kind way to think about that. I feel like that's the subconscious thought that maybe I would have is like, how does somebody end up writing that? And now you see, well, when you allow yourself to pay attention, allow yourself to be rooted in a place in a real true way to where you find it fascinating that you find the infinite, like the infinite possibilities in this tiny infinitesimal place. That's where it comes from. I'm thinking now about... Uh, some people connected to Milligan College, where I went to school, that are so ingrained in the history of the school and the place where it came from and how that place became what it is. It's a very, fairly small school. Right? I think of that person to have a new appreciation. Memory keepers and storytellers are 
have to be synonymous, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the people who, number one, have the attention uh, to be able to gather and collect stories and then to be able to hold on to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of people at at Hopwood, the church I I go to. Yeah, there are definitely people in the the pastor, Tim Ross, who I'm sure we'll have on at some Mm -hmm. point. He's a Wendell Berry fan as well, but I could just sit and listen to him tell stories about uh, people in Johnson City all the time. He has, he said he eventually wants to write a collection of funeral stories uh, of <laughs> oh, crazy funerals he's presided over. <laughs> uh, there's one where he went to the funeral and then afterwards there was sort of a gathering of the family and they decided that they were going to sing karaoke because that's <laughs> what the guy who who had passed away uh, liked to do, yeah. So yeah, I, I do think of people like that. Um as human beings, I think we think of ourselves and our lives in, in narrative uh, form, right? So people who are storytellers about your community, and even if the story seems kind of funny and pointless, um, it's still sort of rooting you in a place and a group of people. Tim, the the series that you mentioned uh, is called Images of America. Oh, yeah. And as, and as I was asking my question, I was looking at the book for Silverton, that I keep on my desk all the time. And the guy who I think of as one of our town's main memory keepers wrote the book. Yeah. Uh, his, na- his name is Gus Frederick. And actually one of our big community festivals every year is happening. It started today. And it is in honor of a relatively famous cartoonist from like the early 20th century. It's a It's a festival inspired by a cartoonist that no one outside of or very few people outside of Silverton have ever heard of. <laughs> but for us, it's the occasion for parades and a three-day festival and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That's cool. Yeah, He's he's keeping that alive. It seems like a misconception is that it's such a small subject that like, oh, well, that would be easy to write. But it's probably like way in the other direction, right? There's a huge amount of information that you're, you're taking in. It's a, it's a big story that you're trying to tell. Right, how a place became what it is. I mean, that's what I feel like for Port William, this fictional town, or that, that he's created. Wendell Berry's been doing this, but it's been eight novels and a hundred short stories, and, and and all this. On the subject of the storytellers, and in mention of Andy, this is it's nice in this first this first time we've touched on fiction to mention that Andy Catlett is a stand-in for Wendell Berry himself. Sort of like he's he, right, and that's that, that was my understanding. Yeah, and I know yeah, I knew I heard is. that yeah, somewhere. So this, so that what Andy Catlett is Wendell Berry's way of being within these stories, and I don't know enough, and you guys might know the answer to this. Whether Matt, yeah, whether Matt yeah. is stands in for a real person, right? Who who passed these stories on to him? But you get the sense that he does. I mean, probably not directly in like a one to one relationship, but you you do get the sense that. Wendell Berry thinks of his maternal grandfather, especially, mm-hmm. um, in sort of the same way as Andy thinks of Matt. Mm-hmm. I feel like we see, well, and we'll we'll get into this a lot later, but you see Wendell Berry's person kind of pop up in other characters some as well. Oh yeah, you know? I oh, mean yeah. all over. I mean Jaber Jaber Crow, right? Um, but but that's that's really worth pointing out. This is our first introduction to. Uh, to the character of Andy Catlett, who's kind of the analog or whatever you'd call it for, for Wendell. Yeah, and so much so that in the newest collection of essays, The Art of Loading Brush, the newest collection of new essays, I should say, Wendell Berry has at least one essay in which he writes about his own uh, his own journey with some of his agrarian friends, like David Klein and Wes Jackson and uh, Gene Lawson, some of those folks. As if Andy Catlett was meeting them, not Wendell Berry. <laughs> <laughs> and he he kind of, he, he talks in the preface, as I recall, about why he chose to do it that way. Maybe I shouldn't speculate, but I feel like what he said was, I really shouldn't have to justify this. but <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I'm not right. really going to all that much. Yeah. Sounds about right. Well, that's, about, that's all I have for The Hurt Man. Do you guys have other things you wanted to, to talk about? Uh, one thing, a note I have here, one thing that I that I highlighted in this kind of as a throwback to the beginning of the story. This is a quote from uh, towards the end of the story. You had definitely referenced this earlier, but I just feel like it's a, a appropriate place to touch on the end. Matt had been surprised when she did not follow him into the house, when she waited on the porch and opened the door to the hurt man and then to his friends. 
But she had not surprised him after that. He saw her as he had known her, a woman who did what the world put before her to do. That last line specifically, a woman who did what the world put before her to do. And that's on the beginning of the story, he describes the town as, uh, he says, the town was a product of its own becoming, which, if not accidental, exactly, had also been unplanned. It had no formal government or formal history. It was without pretense or ambition, for it was the sort of place that pretentious or ambitious people were inclined to leave. It had never declared an aspiration to become anything it was not. It did not thrive so much as it merely lived, doing the things it needed to do to stay alive. That's Port William. A really Mm -hmm. good description of Port William, and then in her uh, as being a character who did what was put before her to do. We meet that in countless characters going forward in a way that because of his care for this place and the way that he talks about Port William will never feel stale. Right. It's a, right. And, yes. and, they, and but, the, but we have all these characters who struggle with it in their own ways, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Burley Coulter comes to mind. Uh, the character who does what he has to do in front of him, but he also doesn't seem like totally comfortable all the time. He has to have his escape. Jaber Crow does that down the road. Whatever's put in front of them to do, they've learned through the gather the narrative of their town that that's what you need to take care of that's the most important thing that was a a big takeaway for me from this story mm-hmm. it was it was interesting to get a few things to to come up here in these first two stories we had the first member of uh, mention of membership yep right and the girl in the window mm-hmm. uh lowercase the membership of the town is the first mention of that the first story how appropriate right that mentions the membership and then we've we've talked briefly about different characters that are the beginning or parts of of lines that we're going to know for that we're going to talk about a lot in the next few years as we go through these stories and uh I was learning things on these readings that I was was not expecting and and this is a, a good moment to to plug that if you're if you're listening and you've are a fan of Wendell Berry's and you haven't yet found the maps and family trees that are on his website, you need to check those out because I learned through this that uh, Margaret's brother owned the little cabin on the lake or on the river that then which his name was Ernest Ernest Finley uh, owned a cabin that ended up in the hands of Burley Coulter, a character that we'll get later and then eventually to Jaber Crow. And so you kind of like to look ahead, like when you meet these characters that are very early on, you can immediately kind of follow that through line into some really interesting places and get excited for what's to come. I know that none of us have read these stories chronologically. I think it really gives a, a beautiful connected perspective yeah. to, to this work. Absolutely. Agreed. Thank you for listening to episode one of the Membership Podcast. If you're reading along with us, and we hope you are, in the next episode we are going to be discussing Barry's 1969 essay collection, The Long-Legged House. There's a lot to discuss, so we've actually split that episode into two parts, which will be released in consecutive weeks. And we're also going to pay special attention to the final three essays in that collection, The Rise, The Long-Legged House, and A Native Hill. Today we discuss two short stories. The Girl in the Window can be found in A Place in Time by Wendell Berry, copyright 2012, Counterpoint Press. The Hurt Man can be found in That Distant Land by Wendell Berry, copyright 2005, Counterpoint Press. You can connect with us online as well as find show notes for this episode on our website, www.membershippod.com. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at membershippod. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, please visit rabbitroom.com slash podcasts. And special thank you to Kate Pattison for her help editing this episode. Mm-hmm.